Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, and verse 27, a verse I've mentioned I think you should bear in mind. It's helpful in understanding the structure of the Gospel of Mark, Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. We're going to be looking at verses 34 to the end of the chapter for the next two weeks, but for the sake of context, in this case, the context of those verses is crucially important. I want to begin reading again at Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. Let's remember as we read that this is God's Word, full of power, full of authority. We bring our lives to it, and under it, we bring our, our lives to it, asking for God to adjust our current life in any way that it is not following His direction. That's what we're asking Him to do every time we read his word. So let's begin reading in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say? That I am. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Our verses this morning. And he called to him the crowds with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And forfeit his life. For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Lord, please bless the preaching, and the obeying of your word. Have you ever had a moment when you have plugged an address into your phone and that delightful voice comes on and tells you which way you're supposed to go, but you decide that that little thing is wrong and is not the way you want to get there? You have a better idea, a better way of getting wherever you want to go. Perhaps there's traffic. Perhaps you think they must be missing a better route. And so you begin to go on a different route than what the directions are telling you to go. And the voice very kindly comes on and says something like, in 500 feet, turn around. And it keeps saying that again and again. In 300 feet, Turn around. My favorite is when you get to the next point and pass the turnaround point, and then it has a decision to make. And I'm interested to know, does it reroute the thing? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you disagree with it so much that it just keeps saying the same thing. A little blue line looks around to the next U-turn. In 500 feet, turn around. And sometimes when I'm really annoyed with that thing, I just turn it down at that point. No, I don't need you after all. I'm going this direction, and I don't need you to tell me that I am wrong. Now, 
if we do that with our phone, it's just a reminder that we are humans and this is a machine and we don't have to listen to that thing if we don't want to. And that's what I'm saying and you can tell me I'm sticking to it. However, sometimes we are tempted to say that to the Lord Jesus. Sometimes, often, we're tempted to say that same thing to the Lord Jesus. We are tempted to just turn down the volume. I like this way that I'm going, and I know that's another way you could go, but I seem to think this is just as good a way, and I prefer this way. So let's turn down the volume. I I don't want to hear you reminding me, turn around, go the other way. And I think we are especially tempted to do that when we come to verses like this, verse 34 and following. We are tempted to turn down the volume of Jesus' voice saying these kinds of things to us. We say, well, I don't really like that. I I would like you to say, good job. You came up with a better way. That's the voice I would like you to speak into my ear. But that's not what Jesus says. What I'm getting to is the idea that when we come to God's Word, especially if we've been Christians any length of time, it is possible to think, my life is basically good. There's nothing I'm going to hear today that should alter my basically good direction in life. But our historical forefathers and foremothers in the faith would have told us, no, no, every time you come to God's Word, God's Word is giving you direction. And sometimes you come to God's Word, and He gives you directions that require you to turn around or turn right or go a different way. And especially when that happens, we must not think that this is the same as God. This belongs to us. We belong to God. So this passage is an invitation for us to turn up the volume and to allow the Lord Jesus to speak into our lives and say, here's how you follow me. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like for you to follow me. And he said something in these verses that I think is so important, so crucial, that we're actually going to take two weeks to walk through it all. (laughs) Two weeks, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, this passage, verses 34 to the end of the chapter, are very important to the rest of the book of Mark. Jesus talks a lot about discipleship over the rest of the book, and if we don't get this foundational direction The other directions won't make sense because he'll be saying, turn right, and we'll be saying, but we're not on that road. We need to get this basic direction so that we can understand the rest of the book. And to that end, it's also important in terms of the meaning of the Christian life. It is possible that if you define the Christian life and take this passage and passages like this out of it, you could have something that we think of as the Christian life but is really no Christian life at all. It is essential to knowing what the Christian life is to hear from the person who is the name of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. The Christ-like life. The Christian life. The life belonging to Christ. And so we need this definition to understand the Christian life. I also think this passage addresses a danger in our culture. And frankly, in our culture as a, a church where we live in this community, in this world, in this age, we could be at risk to turn down the volume of passages like this as well. I tend to think that our greatest danger in the West is not always, sometimes, but not always extreme sins, but rather idolized comforts. Not always extreme sins. Occasionally, yes, extreme sins are present, but often, especially with church-going religious kinds of people, it can be idolized comforts, good things that are elevated to the level of deity in our life, that are assumed to be legitimate because they are not explicitly bad. And so I think we need this passage. Our scandalous sins certainly are present, but so are what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Respectable sins, those idols of life that quietly sit unhindered on the throne that should be reserved for Christ in our heart. We want to make sure that we hear, we we turn up the volume of Christ in this passage and respond. We don't want to come into God's Word thinking, well, when I walk out of here, I'm heading into a life virtually unchanged by the Bible. 
That's, that's not what a faithful, obedient Christian does. We don't come into the Word and say, oh good, that was pleasant, now back to the ordinarily scheduled program. No, no, we want to be changed. We want to be redirected in some way, large or small, by the voice of the Lord. Now this passage breaks down into two main sections, his call to sacrifice and then his reasons for sacrifice. We're just going to cover the first reason today, but we're going to get started in that passage and we'll cover the rest of them next week. But the, the basic breakdown of it is he calls them to a definition of the Christian life and then thankfully, because he's kind and gracious as our Lord, he gives reasons why this is a really good idea for you to live in this way. His call to sacrifice, and then his reasons to sacrifice. Let's look at this call first of all. You want to notice he calls everyone. The crowd comes to him with the disciples. Then he says, if anyone would come after me. Now, the good news is that this call goes to anyone. There is not a precondition here of godliness or greatness, fame or wealth or brilliance. Nope, this call goes to everyone. Anyone can get in on this invitation. It goes to anyone. And if you want to follow Jesus and go with him into his future, he is willing to give you a definition of what that following will look like. The call is to those who want to be followers of Jesus. If anyone would come after me. It's the language of discipleship, of following a master. So what follows is definitional. It is essential. If anyone would, if you want to follow me, he is saying, here is what that following must look like. If you want to follow me, here is the road. Here are the directions. Here is the way to go. Here's what it will look like. It's not subjective. It's not cultural. It's not emotional. It has a defined description, and Jesus is about to provide it. The calling the calling of the disciple is defined by the master of the disciple. And the master is Jesus. That's why we can't turn down the volume because if we would follow him, we are saying you get to decide which way we should go, what that following will look like. Now, important to get this straight at the outset. The call of the disciple is not the source, listen, Listen, the lifestyle of the disciple or the call of his life is not the source of the disciple's salvation. Jesus is not defining the way in which a person is saved here. He is defining what it looks like for a person to follow Jesus. Very important to get that correct. And then he provides this definition. He gives three startling words, startling phrases to define the road that we and anyone must follow if we want to follow Jesus. What must he do? First of all, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. He must deny himself. Now, right at the outset, we find in our hearts resistance to this particular direction. Really, does that have to be the starting point of being a follower of Jesus as saying no to myself? But look at what Jesus says and let these words ring with authority. Any part of your heart that says, oh, that's awfully uncomfortable, tell that voice to be quiet and listen to this voice. Let anyone who would follow me deny himself. Deny himself. Why? Because the self in this fallen world, it craves independence and self-centeredness, a kind of absolute freedom to follow its own pleasure and comfort, to do whatever it enjoys. Yet Jesus says the first step to being his disciple is to say no to our self-centered desires. My youngest son had his first soccer season this year, and it was somewhat humorous to watch him in this first soccer season, partially because there were things about his little heart that I saw that I hadn't seen in other contexts. Namely, he likes doing his own thing. Really, a lot. So everybody is heading one direction, and he, yesterday on the field, wanted to pick up a stick and go into army mode right there on the field, which we thought was really unhelpful and dangerous. And then when I came to the side and tried in my least embarrassing voice to say, son, put the stick down. 
He said, and I told him, go this way. He mouthed to me, I know, a couple of times on the course of the field. I know. And I want to say, you're five. You don't know anything. But he feels like he knows, and he wants to do his own thing, and he wants to wander around the field regardless. And if he wants to kick the ball, great. If not, great. Who cares? I'm doing my own thing out here. Well, you know what's really sad? We're all like that. In this fallen world, post-Adam and Eve, we like our own thing. And we tend to think, I think it's pretty good. So we tend to tell God, I know. Son, put your selfish interest down and go over there. I know. I got it. Let's just turn that down a bit. If anyone would follow me, he must do what? If somebody asked you, what does it mean to live the Christian life? Here's a very simple, plain, it is not find one of the trees in the woods and turn left kind of directions. Very direct. Deny himself. It is a command to turn away from a kind of freedom to do whatever we would like to do, to follow our own pleasure and comfort, to do what we might naturally enjoy in the service of God's kingdom. And we can fill in the picture here with other scriptures to clarify that this doesn't mean we're saying no to any kind of joy or any kind of earthly happiness, more on that in a little bit, but we are saying no to that parts of us that wants to be self-governed, self-pleasing, self-determining. We're saying no. To be a follower of Jesus means you are no longer a follower of self. His dreams and not your dreams are authoritative. His words and not your instinct are authoritative. His desires and not your preferences are authoritative. That's what it means. It means denying. It means that you have a self and you have a Savior, and one of them gets no, and it's not Jesus. D. Edmund Hebert says, The disciple must no longer make his own interests and desires the supreme concern of his life. He must turn away, I love this phrase, from the idolatry of self-centeredness. How easy is it to wake up in the morning and start immediately thinking about yourself? How do I feel? How do I feel about the day? What would I like out of today? What would I like out of tomorrow? What would I like out of retirement? What would I like out of a house? What would I like out of a car? What would I like in my wife? What would I like in my children? What would I like out of my neighbor? And the central word in all of those sentences is I. What the disciple begins this day with saying is, what would Jesus like? For my life. What would Jesus like for my day? What would Jesus like for my marriage? What would Jesus like for my children? What would Jesus like for me to do towards my neighbor? What would Jesus like for me at work? What would Jesus like? And if the I says, yes, but what about I? The disciple says, no. Sit down. You're not in charge. He adds to this lest we think this could be somehow minimized or caveated or he's being extreme, Jesus crescendos. Deny himself. Oh, come on. What does that mean exactly? Can't we just take the side route? And take up his cross. So lest you think deny himself isn't strong enough, take up his cross. Now, this is a shocking phrase in the culture. Shocking, 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 shocking. The cross was the extreme end of shameful, brutal torture and death in the Roman Empire. To take up your cross meant you were going to die. So lest you don't want to listen to the first phrase, you can go to the second phrase and he gets even louder. D. Edmund Hebert again helps us understand. The Romans compelled the condemned criminal to bear the cross beam to the place of execution so to take up his cross meant that such a one was going out to die. Like his Lord, each disciple must bear his own cross. James Edwards adds this, The image of the cross signifies a total claim. 
on the disciples' allegiance and the total relinquishment of his resources to Jesus. Now, the point here is never that pain is good in and of itself, but rather that serving Jesus requires a crucifixion, a dying to our worldly self-centered interest, a determination to gladly lay down any claim, any claim to personal reservations when it comes to serving our Lord. We have no private space. We have no secret stash. We have no me time if we are a disciple of Jesus. We have a life all of which, from the beginning to the end, from the front to the back, from the highest to the lowest, all of which belongs to the Lord Jesus, just as surely as a person hanging on a cross says, my life is now over. Except the Christian says, my life belongs to him. Then he says, follow me. Follow me. So it's not asceticism. It's not just pain for its own sake. Follow me. The immediate context is that Jesus, as he has just said, is going to his terrible mission of bearing the cross of our sins, bearing our burdens, rescuing us by his redemption. And in the garden, he will pray, not my will, but yours be done. So to follow Jesus in context means we are following him as his servants along the path of our own discipleship, our own calling, which is not to save ourselves, but it is to serve him with all that we are so that we can echo his words to him. Not my will, but yours be done. This is what it means to be a Christian. These are the directions of the Christian life. And my friends, these are the only directions These are the directions from the person who knows how to get us there. There is no alternate route. There's no different way to get there. There's no better plan. There's no side road. There is Jesus' road, and there is being lost. Those are the only two roads that there are. So when he says, what does it mean to be a disciple? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's giving us very clear, very loud, very specific directions. And we should be grateful for that. Wouldn't it be frustrating and exhausting if the Bible was like some other religious texts and gave extremely confusing directions? Go right, well, I mean left. I mean, it's right if you go left. And then, and then go past the tree. But then when you get to the other tree, turn around. And then, you know, what you really should do, sometimes serve yourself, but sometimes serve me. And sometimes it's good to love other people. And sometimes you should hate other people. What do you want? Not so with our Lord. Very specific, very direct, very difficult, but very direct directions. Now, the call here is to sacrifice. The call is your sacrifice, not of our ultimate joy or our eternal joy, as Jesus will make clear, but of our earthly comfort whenever necessary for the sake of Jesus. You might summarize this call and the motivations by saying this, following Jesus requires, requires worldly sacrifice. Following Jesus requires worldly sacrifice with eternity in view. Following Jesus requires worldly sacrifice with eternity in view. Now, a couple of things we need to understand based on the broad teaching of Scripture. First of all, this is not asceticism. God made this world with creativity and beauty and earthly joys that he enjoys and that we can enjoy, and they are meant to be enjoyed. The call is not against earthly joys, but it is against earthly joys that are elevated above sacrificing for Christ and his kingdom. If they can be enjoyed in his service and for his glory, they should be. But if they are elevated and assumed as rights, they become a Lord in place of Jesus. It's not asceticism, but it is putting those joys in their proper place. It's also not Gnosticism. Gnosticism, we know that God made the body. And the body is good as originally created. So this is not a passage against bodily enjoyment or pleasure or some kind of happiness in what you eat or what you feel. No, it's not saying that. Again, it's saying those things cannot be elevated above the call of God to sacrifice. And sometimes we sacrifice the good things God has given us in the path of serving him. 
This is also not legalism. We do not sacrifice to earn our salvation. His cross and our cross are two very different crosses. We do not die for our own sins. We die for the one who died for our sins. Very important difference. We don't get to heaven and say, look at how I died for you, and shouldn't you now let me into heaven? No, because that wouldn't do anything about the times we didn't serve him. So Jesus died for our sins and to pay for our forgiveness and to give us entrance into heaven. We do not die to save ourselves, but we do die. There is a death involved for the Christian. It is a death to self in service of the Savior. So it is not asceticism, it's not Gnosticism, it's not legalism. It is addressing the nature of following Jesus, which is precisely why we should want to take up our crosses and follow him. Listen, we have the honor in some small way to walk in his path, knowing that he bore the wrath of God in our place. He took the burden of our sins. He calls us to lay aside self-interest in his service, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Whatever service we offer, it could never repay him, and it does not redeem us. It's simply gladly and lovingly following the one who was crushed for our iniquities on that tree. Now let's pause a moment and ponder. Don't weaken this definition. Those caveats are not meant to minimize the force of this passage. They border it like bumper bowling, where you put the bumpers up. And what does that mean? Pretty much you can roll that bowling ball as hard as you want because it's not going to go in the gutter, right? Well, that's what these other caveats do. They protect us from thinking, well, we're saving ourselves, or Jesus hates beauty, or he doesn't want us to feel any joy. No, no, he's not saying that, but you can't let them eliminate the lane entirely. This passage has to speak for itself. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's his definition. It's his directions coming to us in the middle of our road. And it may be that we need to hear in some way or measure, turn around. Veer right. Return to the route. Brothers and sisters, where is that true for us? Where in our lives... Are we saying no to something we want and yes to sacrifice in the path of serving Jesus? Does our life look like this definition? Self-denial for the sake of our Lord. Listen, how easy it is, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, to think about your life flatteringly, positively. It's like when you see a picture of yourself and you think, I'm much thinner and better looking than that. I know. I, I'm pretty sure when you look in the mirror, your brain does something every morning. It beautifies you, but the camera doesn't have that chip. So somebody takes a picture of you and like, man, can you get, take a better angle? Okay, come on. Listen, we do that with our soul. We look at our life and we say, you know, I think, I, I think it's pretty great. I mean, a few little slip-ups here and there, but it's just kind of like a rumble strip thing. I just kind of occasionally rumble, and I, you know, I come back on. I'm good. I'm basically good. Occasionally, I slip up and I'll go on the rumble strip, but then, you know, I, I come right back on. It's highly likely that there's a self-flattering view of how Christ-like our life is. Isn't that highly likely? Isn't it highly likely, like the person who thinks, I'm, I'm an amazing athlete, and then they play with amazing athletes, and they're like, wow, I'm not amazing at all. I remember when I was just entering ministry, and I had been in a relatively small church and was a leader in various ways and a musician and stuff, and I came to this really big church, and I was doing this internship, and finally it just kind of hit me in the face. I was like, I'm not the best at anything here. 
And that was really weird because I was used to being kind of good at stuff compared to some other people. And, and I went into this big church and I was like, man, I'm not the best at anything. I'm not the best preacher. I'm not the best musician. I'm not the best counselor. I'm not the best athlete. I'm not the best at anything. How do I handle that? Sometimes we come to God's word and we're used to thinking our life is pretty good. And we need to turn up the volume of God's word, not to condemn us, but so that we can make sure we are following the Lord Jesus. Don't we want to do that? Don't we want to actually follow the Lord Jesus? Don't we want to actually serve him the way he defines it? Yes, we do. Where in our lives are we saying no to something we want and yes to sacrifice in the path of Jesus? Where Where do we have good things that we ought to lay down in the service of the Lord? I can't tell you what exactly that thing is. Christians are called to different accents, different ways of serving, but but we need to let God's word speak into our life. Is there something in your life you're like, look, this is all for Jesus, but this he doesn't get to take? And we all have different things that are like the don't take list. It's like when you're moving and you have a stack of things with a big sign on it that says don't put in the truck. We do that with our life. We have stuff over here, don't touch. All that other stuff, go for it. And sometimes if we're really honest with ourselves, that, that stack is bigger than the stack that he can take. Listen, we want to go and take that sign off and put a new sign on that says, Jesus, you can take this whenever you want. And if you bring to mind some way where this would be useful for you, you're, you're welcome to have it. And I'm not talking about somebody's life out there who's just rarely thinking about Jesus in any sense and needs to learn to maybe come to church once in a while. I'm talking about real Christians that need to consider the definition of discipleship. Let's be honest with ourselves. We live in an infinitely comfortable society. And our temptation is to assume our road is pretty good. We need to come to God's word and allow him gently, kindly, lovingly, authoritatively to say, there's a stack over here, and it has a big sign on it, and I know it, and you know it, it's the don't touch Jesus stack. And it doesn't mean he will take all that right away, but we should at least be able to say to him, Lord, this is yours. This dream is yours. That preference is yours. And if there's a way right now that I can clearly see why it would be useful to you, it belongs to you. His call to sacrifice defines the Christian life. We have to define our own lives the same way. Can't assume that just because something is not bad, that it need not be sacrificed for Jesus. It need not be open-handed towards him. As if the only thing Jesus comes to do in our life is to make us not horrible sinners. He came to make us disciples. Not just not terrible sinners. True followers of him. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us alone with that call. He also gives us reasons. We're just going to look at the first one because all of them are so rich. I I thought we needed more time to consider it. But the first reason for sacrifice, if you look down at the Bible, he says this. For, why should we do this? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I don't know how Jesus put so much truth in such a short sentence. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now the paradox here is is clear. If we understand he's talking about our life in this age and our life in the age to come. 
if we live in this life for this life, if we cling with passion to our self-interest in this world, our worldly comfort, security, popularity, reputation, all the things that glitter in this world, if you grasp them and will not let them go, you may be able to hold on to them for a little while, but death will take them from you in the end. If you save your life, hold on to it, grip it, don't let it go, you will lose it in the end. You will. You will lose it. I don't care how much time you spent on Netflix, eventually you will not be able to watch Netflix anymore. I don't care how much money you have, eventually you will not have it anymore. I don't care how healthy you are, eventually you will not have your health anymore. It doesn't matter how many vacations you go on, eventually you will not be going on vacations anymore. Listen, we can go down the list because we all have different things we want to save and hold on to. What he's saying is, look, if you, if you cling to these, if this becomes your God, if this becomes what you're about, if you're trying to hold on to it tight-fisted, I will not let it go. Listen, you will lose it in the end. This is an absolutely undeniable prophecy of Jesus to every human being. Whatever you are holding on to in this life, let, let me guarantee you, if it belongs to this world, you will lose it in the end. But if you lose your life, and in the context of the verses, it is losing your life because of following Jesus. If, if you let it go in his service for the gospel, what will you find? That that very act is the thing that indicates that your life in the end will be restored to you. It's a beautiful saying that the person who lets go of their life is the person who will have their life saved in the end. The person who lets go is the person who is given life in the end. The person who clings will have what he has taken from him. Here's the point. You must lose your life one way or the other. One of my children has struggled at times when I present them with two difficult choices. I said, we can either do this or this. And he's a master at saying, I want a third choice. And I keep saying, no, no, no. Let me try this again. This or this. No, no, I don't, I don't want, I want this. Okay. Listen, this is what the Lord Jesus is saying to us. You can hold on to your life and you will lose it. Or you can lose your life and you will find it. Now, I think that we get the basic logic of that passage. I think we, we basically get it, and I, I think we would understand it. If this was just about logic, you're holding on to your life as a bag of treasure, and you fall overboard. And in those few moments when you're drifting downward, you have a choice. You can give up this treasure and the life that it represented, and then you can find your life at the surface, or you can hold on to it for a few more minutes, and then you will lose it in the end. We get that logic. I don't think the issue here is just not understanding the logic. I think all of us in that moment with that choice would say, let it go. It's hard. It's painful. I don't want to let it go, but let it go. We would get the logic. I don't think that's the main problem. It's not that we don't understand the logic of eternity. It's that we don't really believe Jesus really is giving us just two choices. I think that's the real struggle with this passage. If we really, really believed, there's two choices, hold on and drown or let go and live. Those are your two choices. I think we'd be like, let go and live. But I think we're like that young person who says, I would like the third choice. I would like hold on and live. I, my wife used to, to tease me about the expression, have your cake and eat it too. Because in her mind, that's dumb. Why would you want to have a cake without eating it? That seems foolish. And I, I, I explained. Well, I think what it means is if you eat your cake, you don't have it anymore. And a person who says, well, I want to have a cake and I want to eat it. You say, well, no, you either have it or you eat it. If you eat it, you don't have it. And if you have it, you haven't yet eaten it. That's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. Either let it go and you will have it back from him in the end or hold on and you will lose it in the end anyway. I think we want to say, I, 
I would like to have a cake and eat it. I would like to have being a Christian and having control of my life. I would like to have being a follower of Jesus and having a do not touch this stack Jesus package. Put your own category in there. What do you want to hold on to? Be honest with yourself. God knows anyway. And it's probably different than my list. But be honest with yourself. I mean, it could be practical things. I mean, we're fairly materialistic in this Western culture. Is it a particular house? Or lots of land? Or kids that turn out a certain way? Or a career? Or certain health abilities? Or exercise routine? What is, it? What is your life that are not bad things? They're good things. But maybe you haven't actually said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, if you need that for some reason, if that has to be crucified in your service, here it is. What is it for you? What is it for you? Is it a particular job, a particular stature in the culture, a particular level of coolness? <laughs> is, is it a, a, a particular ride that you, you've always said, I like this kind of car, this age of car, or is it a, is it a particular place of living? What is it? What is it the thing you're, you're holding on to? I, though, I, I would like to live and have this life. Listen, I think this is a pervasive temptation for our culture and in our church and in my heart that we want to say to Jesus, I'd like the third option, please. I'd like a certain level of a life that I'd like, and I'd like to be a follower of Jesus. But we have to understand Jesus does not deal in that way. He comes to us and saying, you can give me all of it or you can sink with it to the end. Now, don't turn down the volume and say things like, well, I'm doing more than somebody else is doing already. Let the word address your heart. It doesn't mean he's going to require those things of you, but you must be willing to give them up and looking for ways to sacrifice proactively in his kingdom is wise because it indicates to you, I really am willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus. Don't be the person that says, I'd like the third option, please. There is no third option. Let me give you two categories I would encourage you to meditate and think about. Big things we would never consider doing and small things we often neglect doing. Big things we would never consider doing and small things we often neglect doing. Now, these are just possible illustrations. You can decide for you. <laughs> but your whole life belongs to Jesus, so nothing's off limits. And you should pray about these. Let, let, let's imagine that you're really into sports. And it's impossible for you to imagine not doing sports a lot. Now, is there anything sinful about sports? No. I love sports. But can you say to the Lord Jesus, I could never play again to serve you. Or at least I could not play this next season. Or at least I could certainly choose to prioritize something else if, if that would serve you. I, I, can, I can give that up. Is that a big thing that is unthinkable that's in the Jesus do not touch stack? Maybe for some people it could be. That they need to have a moment with the Lord where they say, Lord, here it is. My sports future is in your hands. If I can serve you and not do that, here it is. What about a house? Oh, but I really like, I really like this house. It's perfect. Nothing wrong with a house. Houses are great. Can you hand your house to the Lord and say, Lord, it's your house. 
if I can serve you better in a different location, it's your house. Now, we all like to say, look, I, it's just stuff. Yeah. Until you have to give it up. <laughs> then it's like God. It's all going to burn in the end. Yes, I know that. Can it burn right now? Would you burn it up by giving it away? What about where you live? Church plant or a mission in some unimpressive town somewhere that isn't nearly as cool as where you live right now. Is that a category? I, 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 man, good for those people. I would never do that. What's the big thing? Certain level of retirement. What's of the crazy big thing? I'm not saying God's calling you to that, but you understand that there needs to be some transaction in your heart where you go back again and again in repeated way throughout your Christian life and say, Lord, there, there is nothing off limits to you. What about the small things that we often neglect? Those, those little things that can indicate to us that we are following Jesus. Time. Money. <laughs> Energy. Listen, is anything wrong with spending time and energy on ourselves in some way? No. But if we begin to think, you know what Jesus is really saying here? What, what he's really saying is not he wants you to deny yourself. He wants you to treat yourself. He doesn't want you to take up your cross. He wants you to take up a hobby. He doesn't want you to follow him. He wants you to include him in the life you're already living. Listen, Jesus is not along for the ride in the life we'd want to live anyway. He tells us where to go. Don't turn down the volume of Jesus' voice. Don't try to find a different route. Don't inform him that you know a better way to get there. What is it for you? Be practical. I can't tell you what it is for you, but it's something. It is something that you need to come to the Lord with this passage and say, Lord, turn up the volume, not down. Where in my current life do I have a sign that says, don't touch Jesus and I know a better way to go, and I need to be redirected and addressing you as Lord and Savior and say, I will gladly deny myself in small ways when the kids will not get in bed and the right thing to do is to serve them with patience, I will deny myself. When my spouse would like to talk and I do not want to talk, I will deny myself. When a person needs to hear the gospel and I would rather be cool, I will deny myself. When I don't want to visit a fellowship group because I'm tired and my boss was mean, I will deny myself. When I'm fatigued, when I'm thinking about how nice a certain trip or enjoyment would be, I'll begin by asking, does this serve you, Lord? And I will deny myself. Christians must live backwards. We start from the end of the age, and then we decide what to do today. And let's remember, in closing, who is giving us this call. It's not some indifferent, clock-making God of deism out there in the universe who's saying, let's see how you handle this. No, this is the Savior who incarnated himself and came in your weak and flimsy flesh to the cross to die in your place and mine. This is the one who took up our burden of sins, who was crushed in our place, who purchased our redemption. This is that Savior. This isn't some indifferent God. This is the incarnate God. And so when he says to you, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, 
and you will find your life in the end. We can believe him and we can follow him and we can find sacrificing for him a joy. That's why this passage is not just about sacrifice. It is about sacrifice with eternity in view. And in that eternity, what will we find? That there is no greater honor outside of being saved than the honor of sacrificing for the Savior. There is no greater honor in eternity other than being saved and all that comes with that than having sacrificed for the Savior. And we don't want to come into heaven and realize we worked so hard to fight for that third option that we neglected giving things over to him that we were going to lose anyway. Because in that moment when we see him, sacrifice will seem like no sacrifice at all. Remember who this is that's issuing this call. Don't turn down the volume of the Lord Jesus. Let his voice rush into the crevices of your heart and your life, the corners of your dreams, the distant fields of your desires. Let him run all around and give him the tour yourself. And at each new area say, and here, Lord, is something else you can use for your glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we respond to your word with joy because you have paid for our sins. And we draw near to you as forgiven sinners. Lord, that we were once running away from you as fast as we could go. But you turned us around, and you changed our heart. And now, Lord, we come to you and say, we belong to you. Take what you will. Here is our life. Help us to find our life in you. 